We continue our study in the book of Romans, and I invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 9. Paul, under divine inspiration, writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. May God bless the reading of his word. Many of you know me, know that my shoulders sometimes come out of socket. Uh, one year with the uh, student ministry, uh, my last year with the student ministry, <clears throat> I was on the ropes course, and they had to shut down the entire thing, make everybody get off because the pastor, student pastor's arm fell out of socket, and, uh, and I ruined everybody else's uh, activity that day. I'm seeing some of the older students shaking their head, yes, I remember that. Well, because of this unfortunate circumstance that I have, um, I have to be careful in all types of things that I uh, do to make sure that I don't pop out. And uh, one of these is that I cannot sleep on the left side of the bed. And I learned this in my first year of marriage. Um, I'm sleeping on the left side of the bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night with a, a great cry of pain, and, and I go, whoa, and Sarah says, what happened? I said, my arm is out of socket. And it was because I guess my arm had been laying off the side and I was relaxed, just enjoying my sleep and probably jerked a little bit and there it goes. And so I said to Sarah, I'm going to need your help. Come over here. And so she comes the other side. I said, just grab my arm and hold it so it just stays level. And I get up, we get out and I said, all right, this is all you got to do. Just start turning my wrist clockwise, and it should just pop back in. And so she's, are you sure? And, and I said, yes, just do it. And of course, I'm like, ah! She goes, I'll stop. No, no, you got to do this. We kept doing it, not going back in. I was like, all right, all right, all right. We got to try something else. Let's go over to the door. I grabbed the door frame. She's got my other arm. I said, pull, just pull and tug. And I'm like, stretch Armstrong here going back and forth as Sarah's getting me. And then that's not working. And then Sarah goes, oh, no, Chase. 
I think I'm going to pass out. <laughs> and I said, no, please don't pass out. I hold my hand, bring it back over to the bed, and let's lay it here. And I get on my knees. We've got it there. You lay down. You just relax. And, and, and then we'll come back to this later. Well, somehow I get myself back in the bed, and I'm laying there completely defeated. I'm going to the emergency room. I can't get this thing back in. And I lay there, and I just relax, and I go, it went back in, Sarah. It just slid back in. We're, we're done. We, we survived. <laughs> and what I learned from that point on is I can't fight this. I can't keep my arm up in tension. I've got to let it down. And then I just have to, like, accept the fact that it's out, and it's almost like it just finally goes and pops right back in. Now, it's painful. It is very painful. It's really funny now. I do it about every two years because I learn something else I can't do, like ropes courses. Um, but that night was pretty excruciating. And I kept fighting the fact that my arm was dislocated, but it wasn't until I relaxed that it rolled back in. Well, in Romans, we've been confronted with some truths that that the human heart fights against. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says we, we suppress. We try to deny. We try to push down. We, we try to cover up. Instead of accepting the reality of our sin and God's holiness, we, we seek creative ways to distract us from this truth. Even ways to deny the reality of the truth or even try to solve the dilemma by ourselves. Yeah, but what we've been seeing in Romans 1 through 3 is that the gospel calls us to stop striving, stop fighting. And the terms it uses in chapter 1 stop suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, but rather give up trust Christ. Instead of turning to God in faith, we often rely on ourselves and our own accomplishments. And if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've, we've seen that, that Paul has just been pulling the rug out from underneath everything that we might rely on, whether it's our upbringing, our heritage, our, our knowledge of the scriptures. He says, if that's what you're relying on, on that day, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And in particular, Paul's been addressing uh, the Jews. He's been talking to them. Why? And this is particularly because they have rejected their Messiah because they are resting in their own righteousness. They're resting in their religious heritage. They're resting in the, the ceremonies that they have participated in. And they are saying, we are God's covenant people. We will not be judged on that day. And Paul is trying to help them see that they are in a world of trouble. And if they keep denying Christ and trusting these good things that the Lord has given, but not seeing their, their need for Jesus they will not be able to stand on the judgment day. And the purpose of this dealing with the Jewish people is because if the chosen people of God 
must repent of their sins and trust Christ, how much more will the rest of the world who don't have the privileges that they had? And so Paul brings his argument to a climax here to explain why is it that you and I cannot rely on ourselves? Why is it that we cannot rely on our religiosity? Why is it that we cannot rely on anything that we see in this world to escape the coming judgment? The answer comes in verses 9 through 20, that we are all under the power of sin. And the only means to escape its grip of death is to deny ourselves and trust Jesus. The reason nothing we do works is because there is a greater problem. We're good at dealing with symptoms, covering up things, but what the gospel tells us, what we've been seeing in Romans, is that there is a deep problem within us. And there is a power that has enslaved us. This is what he gets at in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. What's he talking about here? It's almost like Paul keeps contradicting himself. If you remember last week, verse 1 of chapter 3, well, what advantage of the Jew? Well, much in every way, verse 2. But here, what then? Are Jews better off? No, not at all. Well, Paul, what are you talking about here? In one way, he's saying there are privileges the Jews have and that God will be faithful to keep his promises with his people even if his people are faithless. But God's faithfulness is going to be in bringing his people to repentance and faith. And so with that caveat, Paul comes back here and says, are the Jews any better off than the Gentiles, you and me? No, not at all. For I've been arguing, he says, already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, notice here, are under sin. What does that phrase mean, to be under sin? Paul's talking about here a, a force, an authority, a rule that every human being is under. I think when we think of sin... We often think of it as a verb, things that I do, and that certainly is the case, and we'll see that even here in this passage. But Paul's talking about sin as a noun, as a thing, as an entity, as something that has enslaved humanity, and it rules us. You kind of can see this in chapter 6, so I'll just flip over a few chapters. Chapter 6, verse 6, now Paul is talking in retrospect from a Christian point of view of what we were like before we came to Christ. And look in verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to what? So that we might not be enslaved to what? Sin, right? Have you ever thought of sin as something that enslaves you? Go down to verses 17 and 18. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of what? Sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. And so prior to becoming a Christian, you and I were enslaved to something, a rule, a power, and, and Paul is telling us that this rule and power is sin. One more verse to consider Chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Brothers and sisters, the whole world is under a power that enslaves us, that shackles us. It affects every aspect of who we are. And how do we know that the whole world is under the power of sin? The whole world dies. Everybody dies. There is no escaping death. And death is the the proof that we're under that power. Look look in chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world. So he speaks of sin like it's an entity. It came into the world. How did it come through the world? He says, through one man. Who's that one man? That's Adam, right? Sin entered the world through Adam. And what was the result? Death through sin. So through man, through Adam, sin entered the world. And as sin entered the world, death came to the world through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all, now here's the verb, have sinned. He goes on, he says, for sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What what is he trying to say here? He's trying to impress upon his readers that sin is a power, and it affects everybody. And and the Jew might be saying, well, what about those before Moses who who didn't have the law? He says, well, even though sins were not reckoned the same way, you still know that sin had its power upon people because everybody died in between Adam and Moses. And that still happens today. Everybody knows in this world that something is not right, whether we call it sin or not. One time I was, uh, I was in college and I was at a, uh, at a conference for college students and talking about evangelism. And I remember asking this question. I said, how do we bring up sin to people who don't want to hear about sin? And I remember the, the, the individual teaching this session. He says, I would differ. I think people do want to hear about sin. And I was like, really? What, what have you been eating today? Because last I checked, nobody wants to talk about sin. He says, they just don't call it that. But everybody wants to talk about their problems. He goes, the whole world knows there is something wrong. 
They feel it. They feel it. They experience it every day. I don't have to convince you that you experience fear, that you experience anxiety and worry. I don't have to convince you when you experience sadness and heartbreak and depression, sickness, pain, and conflict. You and I, as Christians, we feel those things. Well, so does the world. And we felt them before we became Christians. That's because the whole world's under the power of sin. That's why those things happen. Sin is the reason. We're messed up. And the world is broken. And it's not just the things we feel, but work is hard, isn't it? You ever tried to work with somebody else? It's sometimes difficult. Or if, or if you're in more an agricultural setting, or just your yard, just to keep up with it. It doesn't cooperate. It's hot. It's cold. Weeds prop up. Even when I pay lawn cure whatever amount of money a month, I still find weeds popping up. Why? Because the whole world under the power of sin. We all feel it. Just watch the news. Just a world just being wrecked in havoc by the power of sin. And, and here's the deal. People are enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to this power. Charles Wesley, in his great hymn, And Can It Be, spoke of that slavery. But when the gospel came, he awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and I went forth and followed thee. Christians have understood the reality of who they were prior to Christ. Now, here's the kicker. Unbelievers don't think they're enslaved. They actually think they're free. They look at you and I and they say, that looks like slavery. No, it doesn't. That's how much sin has blinded the hearts of unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that I often pray when I confess my sins is I acknowledge Yes, I've been freed from sin, but that old man, he is breathing down my neck. He is there close by that when I, I long to do what is right, I also have this other the old man tugging at me to do what is evil. But when I pray, Lord, and I confess my sins to him, I often say, Lord, I am so sinful, I don't even realize how sinful I am. Do you, do you agree with what the scriptures say about you? If you're a Christian, you were once sold under sin. You once were enslaved to sin. If you're not a Christian, you are not free. You are bound by the power of sin. But sin is not some power that we passively experience. It's not merely something that we passively experience, as if we're innocent bystanders. Oh, we can't help it. It just happens to me. No sin manifests itself through us. And, that, and that's what Paul begins to do in, in the rest of these verses in 10 through 18. Paul collects several scriptures from, excuse me, from Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah to show us that the power of sin is manifested through us. It's seen in us. 
And from these verses, we see three primary ways which sin is manifested. So if you're taking notes, you can just hear these. Sin is manifested in our heart, it's manifested in our words, and it's manifested in our actions. Heart, words, and actions. Sin is manifested. Look in verses 10 through 12. Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And in case you didn't understand, not even one. What I want you to see here is that our hearts are, by default, when we're born, enslaved to sin, and this describes us that none of us are born righteous. Nobody is born seeking God. No one is born and naturally does what is good. And and even though he doesn't use the terms here of heart, but he's talking about our desires, our will. We don't long for the things of God by default. That's why he says no one's righteous. Ecclesiastes, that he's probably alluding to, says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth, one who does good and never sins. This isn't just what Paul said. Paul's not just being angry. No, he is quoting the Old Testament, which is saying this about humanity. His brother Gary read from Psalm 14. The Lord looks down on heaven upon the children of man to see, is there anyone who understands? Anyone who understands the things of God? And the answer that's being presupposed is no. No one does. They're like sheep without a shepherd, scattered abroad. And it's not like they're wandering aimlessly and innocently. No, they are not doing what is good. Notice the universal language. No one, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. If you think you're the exception, you're not listening. And here's the deal. This is kind of back to that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Man, Chase, this isn't encouraging. I don't like to hear this. And so we suppress it. We say, this must not be what it says. This must not be talking about me. I'm not like that. I'm not as bad as that person. And the point here is not that we are all as bad as we could be. Isn't that good news? We're not all as bad as we could be. But we all are equally sinners under the power of sin. An illustration that I once heard, imagine you're at the beach and you see an island in the distance and everybody's trying to run and jump through over the ocean to the other island. Now, some of us might be able to jump farther, but none of us are going to jump to that island. Some of us might be, be able to get a little bit more speed going, but at the end of the day, when you look at the big picture, the difference is really not that big. Now, you might be morally superior in some way to somebody else, but at the end of the day, you're still sold under sin. You're still way off from the mark. Because the mark is God's holiness and his righteousness. 
And so when he says that no one in verse 12 does what is good, well, what is good? To honor God, to give thanks to God, to love God, and to love neighbor. No one does that. Actually, everybody does it with the taintedness of sin. I mean, have you ever tried to discern your own motives in the things that you do? Even as a Christian, I can't discern my heart sometimes. Because am I doing this for myself or am I actually doing this out of love for the Lord? And I can get myself so worked up that even trying to be humble could actually be a, tri- a, a trial to be proud. And the thing is, is once you become a Christian, you begin to explore the depths of your sin more. You begin to realize there's so much more than I, than I ever realized. And that's actually a sign of a growing Christian. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will. The will is bent, it is in bondage, it is enslaved, and it naturally runs from God. Chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Talking about the heavens declare the glory of God, natural revelation. that Everyone knows that there is a God who created them and he is all powerful and all authoritative. And yet we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We've become futile in our thinking, verse 21. We claim to be wise, but we've become fools. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for for images reflecting mortal men. It's kind of like taking two magnets of the same charge. Anytime the glory of God gets close to us, we repel. That's our natural inclination. And I invite you to think about when you were a believer and people, or before you were a believer and people tried to share the gospel with you. Now, maybe in God's grace, you came to faith at a really young age, and that repelling didn't happen very long in your life. I hope that's, that's my prayer for my own children and the children of this church. But I can remember sitting here in a church, and there were words, but I was not having any interest in those words. And when someone would want to sit down to me and open up the scriptures, I didn't like what I heard And when my parents would would want to talk to me about spiritual things, that was the last thing on my mind. Maybe you can recall seasons of your life. That's because we were under the power of sin. And he sums it up in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's what we do by nature. We all live like God does not know our sin. And we all live like God will not do anything about it. Isn't that true? As long as none of you know my sin, it's okay. As if there is not an almighty God and creator who knows all things. And before Christ, we certainly live like that. So not only in our hearts does sin manifest itself, but then it comes out of our hearts into our words. Look in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps. That's just vipers. I don't know why the English translators do that. I've never called a snake an asp. But it is a viper. It is a snake. And it is under their lips. What a, what a picture. 
And he's, he's alluding to that theme that we looked at a couple of, of weeks ago, and that there's the, the children of the woman and the children of the serpent. And they're going to be at odds. Well, guess what? We're all born children of the serpent. <laughs> and it comes out that we're like snakes, and there's venom on our lips. That's the picture that he's painting. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What graphic language he's using here, or the scriptures are using here that Paul's just quoting. Their throat is an open grave. I've never kind of thought of my throat being that way. But what he's picturing is that when you open up your mouth, death occurs. Death occurs. Why? Because we use our mouths to deceive people. There's two ways that we often do that. Humanity does it. We deceive people by making sure people think better of us than we truly are. And then on the flip side, we, we want to make sure people think less of you than us. And so we put you down and we lift ourselves up and we deceive. And we use our tongue to orchestrate things and to make us look really good and to get our point across and to accomplish our agendas. We even do that as believers, let alone what an unbeliever may do. The venom of vipers. We use our words to kill and cause harm. Again, this doesn't mean that we all have potty mouths, but it does mean that we're all guilty of manifesting hate through our lips. As James writes, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And if you can tame your tongue, then you could control your whole body. But guess what? No one can tame the tongue. Brothers and sisters, we know that's to be true, right? We cannot tame our tongue. I can think of my own experience. Oh, there are things that I, I have said or written that I am so ashamed of. Where, where did that come from? I think especially before being a Christian, if someone wronged me or, or did something, the way I would speak of them, maybe in private, wishing I had the guts to say to them. But what, what's the point? The point is, is that your lips are a window into your heart. If you don't believe you're a sinner, well, just record yourself for a week. Even when nobody else is listening. And maybe that recording needs to pick up your thoughts. Maybe you don't say them out loud even to yourself, but you think things. From a heart leads to words, which then leads to actions. If we say things long enough, we'll start doing them, won't we? You start saying things enough, you start doing them. It's one of the things in like premarital, you, you say, you never begin to entertain the thought of divorce, because if you start talking about it, you're going to go do it. We're talking about sexual immorality of some sort. You start talking and entertaining it, you will lead yourself down the path of doing it. You talk about anger and you hate somebody and you just let yourself rattle it off all day long in the car and in the shower and light, late at night and you just let it come out. You know what? It's going to come out when you meet them one day. It's going to. And we've all experienced it when we've done it. Where we've just let someone have it, the words turned into action. And it's kind of hard to discern the two, because sometimes that action is, I'm going to tell you to your face, and I'm going to go off, I'm going to be the fool of Proverbs and get full vent to my spirit. We do it. 
And that's what he gets at. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined in misery and the way of peace they have not known. This doesn't mean that we're all have murdered someone. I, don't, I think most of us are clear of that. Maybe not. But if we speak murderous things, we'll take murderous actions. If we speak hateful things, we'll start doing hateful things. If we fill our, our, our spirit with anger and disgust, we'll gossip, we'll slander, we'll fight. It'll come out. And the point here is that, yes, we aren't maybe doing these very exact things, but this describes humanity, and we can see ourselves here if we're honest, right? We can see ourselves. And so being under the power of sin means we cannot simply try harder, right? That's not the answer. Or do better. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they begin to list like their achievements? Well, you know what, I don't, I don't do this or I'm trying to stop. I, I'm actually intending to start going to church a little bit more. And they start justifying all their actions. You ever experienced that? What is their assumption I can, write, I can write this wrong. I can get the ship back in order. I can correct all this. And you realize from that point, like Jesus is of no value to them yet. Francis Schaeffer said that I spend 90% of my time in evangelism. He's the great apologist. He says, I spend 90% of my evangelism trying to convince people that they're sinners. And the last 10% I share the gospel. Know where he got that? If you've been with us, this has been pretty depressing for the last three chapters, hasn't it? <laughs> it's just wailing on us. Boom, boom, boom. But the problem is, we don't like that. The human heart rejects that. So we need to hear it more and more and more. And so, if you're sitting here today and you're trying to justify yourself, you're saying, no, no. I was baptized as a baby, I've done this, I've done that, I've gone to church my whole life. If that is your response, you're not listening. You aren't listening. Your heart is hard to the truths of the gospel. And Paul, more importantly, the Lord is speaking right now through his word, trying to soften your heart and saying, just like me, stop tugging and twisting and pulling and trying to solve this. Give up. Give up and trust the gospel. Trust the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul gets to in verses 19 and 20. He's showed us the power of sin, the manifestation of sin, and now the knowledge of sin. And he wants to show us that works cannot justify. They can't. Even obeying God's commands, the law, cannot justify. It's not going to be able to solve your problem and my problem. Why? Because it's a bigger deal than just me stopping doing something. You can't stop what you're enslaved to. You have to have the shackles, uh, 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 a key, and someone to unlock the shackles and open the gates and bring you out. And the imagery is pretty powerful if you, if you were able to put a big picture of, of the scriptures together. The picture is, is that we have all been enslaved to Satan in sin. 
and that Christ has come, and, and those who have believed, like Charles Wesley, and the light showed forth in the dungeon, and, and our shackles broke off, now we're running, but we're still behind enemy lines. And we are running for our life. And Satan, like a lion, is seeking whom he may devour. And temptations are waging war against our soul. And we are running, and we are fighting. And at the end of the day, the only way we can fight is trusting Christ. And so Paul says to them, now we know, I hope that's true of us, now we know that whatever the law says, what's he talking about? He's talking about verses 10 through 18. Right now, he's, he's using a broader sense of the law here, probably speaking of all God's Old Testament revelation, which is reflecting on the Mosaic law. He says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's that? That's the Jews. They were under the law. But notice the purpose statement here. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. How's that work? Israel was given the law. We could summarize the law in the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments can be summarized in two commandments, love God and love neighbor. They were given these commandments so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. How, how does that work? God gave Israel the law. And as we have the revelation in the Old Testament, how did they respond to the law? Their sins actually increased. I mean, the wedding night, Moses is getting the law, he comes down, and they are in adultery with Baal. They have made a golden calf. Make us a god like the gods of Egypt on the wedding night. And so the point has been, oh, if you and I had received the law, we had been doing it too. Israel got the same problem. They're under the power of sin. And when God's law comes, sin hijacks the law and causes us to sin all the more. That's what happens. And so what has happened to Israel is actually indictment on the whole world. We'll see this more in Romans chapter 7. So he goes on, verse 20, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You can't be justified. You can't be made righteous. You can't have your sins covered if you think just obeying is going to solve it. Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's what God's commands in the Old Testament did, and then we'll, we'll close and sing this final song. God's law revealed how wicked we are. That's what it did. And it showed us that God is holy and righteous and we are not. That's all it could do. It can only show you your sinfulness. It cannot bring the solution. And this is why Paul will say in chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end doesn't mean kind of like the end of something. It means the goal. It's the, it's the end. It's the finish line. It's what the law was pointing to. So brothers and sisters, here's what the law's work is to do in the human heart. is to slay us. It's to bring us to our end. It is to expose our sin and basically cause a verdict of death to come upon us. 
so that there is only one response. We have fought, we have flailed, we have, we have tried to deny the reality of our sinfulness that we, we cannot escape it anymore and we give up and we turn our eyes and look to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. And if you, when, when we do get there and we go through the Old Testament, we're gonna see all these things were to just show Israel, you can't cover your sin, you can't cover your sin, you fall short, you fall short, you fall short. There is one who's coming that you must put your trust in. That's the purpose of the law. And so as we close here, we're left with two options. If you're an unbeliever, you can continue to fight. You can live in denial that these things are not true, and the law will have its verdict on you, and you know it's true. Or, as we'll see later in Romans, you can die to the law. How do you become freed from slavery? You die. And when you die to yourself, you'll be made alive to Christ. So here's where I want to encourage you this morning if you've never died to yourself, if you've never heeded Jesus' words, whoever wishes to save himself in this life will will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Let the law do its work in exposing your sin. Let it kill you. Let it speak and you just say, that's right. That's called confession of sin. Lord, I agree with your verdict against me. And I don't even realize how bad it is. I agree. And I deserve the full penalty of death. And in that state of humility, you call out to mercy through Jesus Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you understand now how Paul's building up to that call? You're left just broken and defeated, and there is nothing left. I can't do anything. All I can do is say, Jesus, save me. And that's the humble heart that God receives. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters who do know the Lord, may this impact our evangelism. May we be teaching our children, knowing that law, mom and dad's law, does not save. It's opportunity just to show them that they're little sinners. And then we bring them the gospel. And we do that with not just children, but even adults. We continue to to show them, you do not think, you're not as righteous as you think you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what do I do? Trust Jesus. Now you have the answer. Why don't we just pray? Next week, the good news comes. Let me just give you a sneak peek so you'll come back. Why don't we do that? (laughs) The law righteousness came, but it could not save. It only condemned you. Verse 21, but now, in light of Christ, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That is very good news we're going to see. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's now ready to give the good news. We'll get there in full force next Sunday, 1030. Be there, be square, okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word is heavy, but Lord, it is a mirror. And Lord, may we not be like those who look in the mirror and see the mess that we are and then walk away and forget what we saw. Lord, those of us who know you, may may this truth of what we were, that we were once 
slaves to sin, but have been made free by Christ, cause us to give thanks to you and worship you and extol you and love you and be gracious to others. And Lord, if there's anyone here, and surely there are those who are deceived and don't think they're enslaved, but they are, I pray that you would open their eyes to their condition and that they would be in a broken condition and they would call out to you. Lord, that's our prayer. We pray that you would use this church to be a mouthpiece of this good news to a broken world who lies under the power of sin. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. If you would, let's stand.